0: We have two readings today. The first is Habakkuk, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 to um, chapter 2, verse 4. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me. And what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied. Write down the revelation. And make it plain on tablets. So that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end. And will not prove false. Though it linger. Wait for it. It will certainly come. And will not delay. See the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. And then if you keep a finger in that reading, because we'll come back to it, uh, and you go on to um, Hebrews 10, 32 to 39. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in great conflict full of suffering... Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come, and it will not delay. And, by my righteous one, will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one that shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. This is God's word.
1: Good morning, everyone. Would you turn back to Habakkuk chapter one? It's a very hard book to find if you if you take your finger out at the wrong moment, and then forget. Although page numbers really come in handy, don't they? Uh, Habakkuk chapter one for us this morning. Good morning. Uh, my name's Pete. I'm new on the staff here, so I look forward to meeting all of you in in due course. And uh, let's pray as we begin this morning. Father in heaven, Lord our God, our rock, we we come to you this morning. Uh, with our troubles and our woes and the things on our mind. And we pray, Father, that you would speak to us. You speak to us about uh, oppression and what you're going to do about it. And whether this is our first ever time opening our Bible practically or whether we're old hands, we pray that there would be something here for us this morning. Amen. We believe in a union, not just between the nations of the United Kingdom, but between all of our citizens, every one of us, whoever we are and wherever we're from. That means fighting against the burning injustice that if you're born poor, you will die on average nine years earlier than others. If you're black, you're treated more harshly by the criminal justice system than if you're white. If you're a white, working-class boy, you're less likely than anybody else in Britain to go to university. If you're at a state school, you're less likely to reach the top professions than if you're educated privately. If you're a woman, you will earn less than a man. If you suffer from mental health problems, then there's not enough help to hand. And if you're young, you'll find it harder than ever before to own your own home. Do you recognize that? That's our new Prime Minister. She, so she stands outside 10 Dining Street last month and she delivers those words. And I mean, I suspect that whatever our political allegiance, we would concur with the idea that we want to see injustice gone. I don't want that in my country. Let's put injustice away and see it resolved. On a similar note, i got some books from the library this week for our little boys. And... Um, this one stuck out. It's called Angus Rides the Goods Train. Now, look, I promise not to regurgitate every children's story that we read our children, but let me just humour me with this one, okay? Angus Rides the Goods Train. Um, there's a little boy called Angus, and uh, he's dreaming one night, and, he, and in his dream, a train pulls up beside his bed. Big steam trains, sort of belching out steam, with a fabulously dressed driver in the cab. And the driver says, "All aboard!" And so Angus thrilled. He, he sort of climbs up in his dream into this train cab. And they go through all sorts of incredible countryside, you know, through mountains and forests and glades. But then he notices that the the landscape gets much more barren. And he sees trees all around the train tracks that are withered and, and dried up. And then the trees start to call out and they say, help us please, we haven't got any water. Angus looks back in the train and he sees there's uh, cargo and one of them is a huge tanker full of water. And he says to the driver, Look, we've got water. Can we give the trees water? And the driver says, No, there's far to go. We have to keep going. And so they keep going on this goods train until they get to an area where there's lots of cages all around them. And there's bears in the cages who are thin and, and emaciated. And the bears talk too and they cry out and they say, Please, we're hungry. Can you help us? And Angus looks back and he sees that there's a car full of honey. And he says to the driver, look, look, please can we help them, we've got all this honey. And the, the driver says, no, we have to keep going. And so they drive on in this train, and they get to a desert. And there's a, a mother there who's thin and gaunt, and she's holding a baby who's even thinner. And, sh- and she cries out and says, please, I need some milk for my baby. And Angus knows that there's a cargo full of milk in the back. And he says to the train driver, we've got to help her. And the same answer comes back, no, we have to get to our destination. So they go around the final bend into the final phase and they get to their destination and Angus sees there the king of the country sitting at a breakfast table with a napkin tucked in and his golden crown on his head and courtiers lined up down the sides. And the driver hops down from the cab and says, your majesty, here is your breakfast. And they start to unload all the milk and the water and the honey. Now at this point, my wife and I are looking a bit puzzled because this isn't a typical children's library book. <laughs> hmm. It's not really happy-go-lucky, is it? So <clears throat> move on to the next one. Um, but Angus Rise the Goods Train is a surprising point of agreement with Theresa May and the sentiment in our society where there is this injustice that we cry out against and we want to solve. Habakkuk was one such voice speaking about 600 BC. And we started this outlook last week in this little book in the Bible called Habakkuk. And it talks about injustice. We saw that chapter one, verses one to 11 was all about the injustice Habakkuk rails against in his own society and God's answer. We're studying it through the whole month of August here in the morning. If you just turn with me, just turn over to the last page of Habakkuk, chapter three, verse 18. We notice that he gets to this incredible place where he's able to see 3 verse 8, 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Now we'll see over the course of the next two weeks. That's not an easy thing. It's not just, you know, ah, thank you, I'm, I'm fixed. I, I no longer have any problems in my life. I can rejoice in the Lord. It's a trajectory he has to build towards. And we'll see that over the course of these four weeks in August. That he builds towards rejoicing. It doesn't, he doesn't get there overnight. And particularly, he builds towards it by three cycles. So Habakkuk complains, and then God answers. That cycle one, we saw that last week. Habakkuk complains again with some temerity, and God answers again. That's this week, although it's it's the longest cycle, so we'll split it into two. We'll do it this week and next. And then Habakkuk gets the last word with the song in chapter 3. So there's three cycles. And probably, if, if you want the date, I think this is 597 B.C., Uh, Cycle number 2, chapter 1, verse 12. It it feels like things have moved on slightly, probably five years from his first complaint in in the start of chapter 1. And um, 597 BC is a a particular date in uh, Israel's diary because it's when Babylon finally invaded. You know, they triumphed, the walls were breached, and all the Jews were taken into exile. So a historian's best guess is that when Habakkuk writes this, He's seen the flags fluttering outside the city walls of the, of the Babylonian army. He's even heard the tramp of the boots of the Babylonian army in the streets of his capital city. He's looked into the whites of the eyes of the Babylonian army officers and he's heard their voices barking out things in a foreign tongue. And most likely he's gone off to the temple to pray. You get what kind of state of mind he's in? We'll, we'll divide this into two halves this morning. We'll have a, a complaint about smug oppression. And then we'll hear the Lord's answer, which is an answer with no time scale. Okay, so first of all, we'll look at this complaint about smug oppression. Chapter 1, verse 12 to chapter 2, verse 1. Look, it really is a complaint. I want you to realize this. We did talk about it last week, but it, it bears repeating. Chapter 2, verse 1, do you see the very last thing that Habakkuk says this week? I will look to see what God will say to me. And what answer I am to give to this complaint? Uh, that, that word, complaint, can sort of slap you around the face, can't it? Hang on a minute. You're an official prophet of God. You're a guy writing in the Bible, and you're saying you're complaining. Who we, we said last week, it's, we're not to imagine a sort of corporate complaint. You know, you're taking to Twitter to, to tag your broadband company in because they haven't connected your line in time. That, that's not the sort of complaint that we're to think of. Rather, it's the sort of complaint that you're, you're suffering with a pain and you walk into the doctor's surgery and you sit down and he says, uh, hello, what can I do for you today? What's your complaint? And you say, I, I've been suffering with this pain. I've got a back pain. It's, it's painful. I've been suffering for some time. Can you tell me what you, you can do about it, please? Because you have more knowledge than me. You're more capable than me. So when we say it's a complaint about smug oppression, that's what we mean. And Habakkuk is in that sense like a model Complainant in the Bible, so we can learn from the way he does things. Look, there's three things that stand out about this complaint that he makes that make him a model. He he stands on what he knows about God, he stands by his complaint, and then he stands and listens. Let me just try and briefly describe each of them. First of all, he, he stands on what he knows about God. You see, chapter one, verse twelve. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. You see how many names he uses for God. See if you can count them. In verse 12 alone, Lord, my God, my Holy One, Lord, my rock. There's a familiarity there, isn't there? He's saying, Look, I, I know you. I, there's an affection. You're my God. It's not unlike how I might have a, a heated discussion with my wife. And you know you know when you are you have a point of disagreement but you're trying to stay reasonable, and I might say, Sarah, darling, my love, I'm let's let's talk about this. Don't be like that. You know that feeling where you are you're groping for affectionate terms in a point of disagreement? And this is what Habakkuk is doing when he says all these names of God. He's also standing on the stuff. The stuff he knows about God. You see, Lord, verse 12, are you not from everlasting? I know you're the everlasting God. You can't die. I know that about you. You're eternal. Similarly, verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. You are holy and I know that. I'm standing on that right now and I'm not going to move from there. The final thing he stands on about God is the thing that God told him earlier in chapter 1, verse 12, halfway through, you, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. So we saw this was the great shock about the first column in Habakkuk. God's appointed the Babylonians to execute judgment. He says, even that, which I'm finding it really hard to cope with right now, I still stand on that because you've told me that that's true. So he stands on what he knows about God. And then he stands by So this is still the complaint about smug oppression. But he stands by it. And he develops this analogy of a a fisherman. You see, let's start in verse 14. You have made people like the fish in the sea. So we have that expression, there's plenty more fish in the sea. Habakkuk's kind of taking that and running with it. He says, mankind, it's like loads of fish in the sea. Like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe, that's Babylon it seems, pulls all of them up with hooks and he catches them in his net, and he gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. So he says, I stand by my complaint because this great Babylonian army, which is now the superpower in the world, is gathering up all of mankind into his big net. My one experience of sea fishing has come in very handy with this passage. Um, uh, I'm not a very good sailor, so it was some trepidation that I went fishing in the Solent on a little trawler and um, it, I discovered that you can't miss if, if the captain is good enough because he sort of steers you into a shoal of fish and um, there's so many all round about that when they hand you a fishing rod with three hooks all the way down it all you have to do is drop it into the water and three fish pop onto your hooks I mean there's just so many of them around the boat so you sort of drag it up and there's three big fish flapping around on your line. And because I'm such a city boy, I really don't know what to do. I can't deal with the blood that's coming out of their mouth or the, the tear that's come up in their gills. So in comes the, the um, I don't know, the, the captain's mate. What is the nautical term? I don't know. But he, he grabs it with his fisherman's hands. He pulls it off the line, more blood spraying everywhere. He throws it into the bucket in the middle of the boat. Does the same with the second one and with the third one. And then he moves on to the next person in the boat who's also got a fishing rod. And there are, there are all these fish flapping in the bucket, pa, 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 you know, until they die a minute or so later. Habakkuk would say that, that the, the, the power of being in the boat is what Babylon are exercising over the whole world in his day. You know, he pulls all of them up with his hook, and they, he just does whatever he wants with them. And they're totally powerless to resist. I stand by that, he says. And not only did did Babylon gather all of these people, but they they glory in it. So verse 15. He gathers them up in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. And and then he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. He he thinks, "These, these are my tools, my muscles, my weapons, and I'm going to bow down to them because they've made me so rich and powerful. He's glorying in it. The king of Babylon at this time, was a a guy called Nebuchadnezzar II. And uh, we know about him partly because of something in the British Museum um, across town, also in Zone 1. This is actually one of the bricks which is in Hoburn right now as we speak. And uh, they they got it from uh, the capital city of Babylon. Maybe you can read the the modern bit at the bottom. Brick inscribed with the name and titles of Nebuchadnezzar II, King of Babylon, 604-561. to You see the the off-center rectangle in the middle of the brick. That's his name and his titles. Such was the guy's ego. He had his name and titles stamped onto every brick in the capital city. So he wanted it to be the case that on on every layer of his palace and the political houses and on all the government buildings was his name and his titles, King of Babylon. That's That's a big ego, isn't it? Glorying in it his uh, successor, a guy called Nabonidus, took it even further when he boasted about his titles. I am Nabonidus, the great king, the strong king, the king of the universe, the king of Babylon, the king of the four corners, who in his mother's womb decreed a royal fate as his destiny. There is a, a glorying in their power, which Habakkuk says, I find that smug Oppression, just intolerable God. And I appeal to you as my rock and my God, and I want to say, please, can you do something about it? So he stands by this complaint that, he, that they gather and they glory, and then if it wasn't w- worse, if it wasn't bad enough, they grow fat. Verse 16 look, he sacrifices to his net, he burns incense to his dragnet, for by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy. We might perhaps see an echo of uh, a North Korean ruler who appears on TV plump and well-fed and uh, apparently owning a, a floating pleasure palace which travels around the coastline and has a water slide and a pizza chef flown in from Italy while the swathes of his population are starving from famine and are, are put into work camps to try and produce food. You know, he, Habakkuk is saying, this, this Babylonian ruler, the wicked foe, he grows fat. And he doesn't care what he does. So Habakkuk stands on what he knows about God. He stands by his complaint. And look, he also stands and listens and I want us to see this too. Chapter 2, verse 1. He's no longer talking to God, but he wants us to know this too. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts and I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. So he says, I'm going to stand on the city walls and the ramparts and I'm going to make sure I'm paying attention. I'm not going to just depart because such is my anger with what God seems to be doing that I'm not going to wait for an answer. I'm not going to run off into sin and assume that God hasn't got anything to say in this situation, hard as it may be. I will I will stand here and I will wait in my pain and my oppression to see what God's got to say. That's his complaint about smug oppression. It may be that as we try and translate this into modern day London, we are acutely aware of some sort of international smug oppression similar to what Habakkuk is talking about. I read this week that Islamic State walked into an office in the Middle East recently and they sprayed bullets around killing four Bible translators who were working there. And I don't know about you, I I read that, and I'm angry and sad all at the same time, thinking about the work they were trying to do. I mean, they're just translating a book, translating the Bible, trying to do good, and they were killed for it, thinking about the setback that the workers suffered because of it. Or maybe that rather than in in big picture international oppression, we're more concerned about something a bit closer to home, sort of local oppression. Oppression struck me, reading a a Guardian expose about Sports Direct, that this thing isn't confined to the international stage. You know, when when staff are confined by the big bosses to zero-hours contracts or short-hours contracts, so that if they make the slightest complaint, there's no compulsion for the employer to renew their contract. They can just be gone. We might be able to think of other examples of local oppression. Well, frankly, you know, for for you, I don't know what it is this morning. The the horizons might be so narrow. The suffering might be so acute just within the bounds of your household or your office that it's, it's impossible to see beyond that. Maybe there's an unscrupulous family member who is so smug in the way he's oppressing you or somebody that you love. You can't see beyond that horizon at the moment. Habakkuk would stand with you when he voices his complaint about smug oppression. I kind of want you to feel that, the emotion with Habakkuk there. But secondly, I, I really, really want you to know that the, the Lord has an answer to this. There is an, an answer with no time scale. So that's our second thing, an answer with no time scale. Chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. The first thing the Lord says to Habakkuk is, <clears throat> excuse me, then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. God says, make it clear. I think in our day and age, perhaps the the best analogy might be those uh, boards you see out of news agents. You know, the ones with the sort of crisscross lattice to keep the paper in place. And it's got the headline. That's it. It's just got the headline. uh, Big black letters. And God is saying, write it on tablets, make it clear. I want everyone in the city to know this. So big black letters, capitals, red, underlined, whatever you like. But people need to know. He's prefacing what he's about to say. Make it clear. Secondly, verse 3, he says, the end is coming. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. The end is coming, Habakkuk. So the revelation that he talks about, or the the vision, seems to be what he's about to say. Verse 4 is very significant, as we'll see but also the rest of Habakkuk. This, it, it is coming. I am going to do something. It awaits an appointed time. It seems slow, I know. I get that. But it's, it's coming. Remember that Guinness advert on TV? I think it was the late 90s, and apparently it won all sorts of awards, and it's in like the top ten commercials of all time. It's, it, you start off with a, a close-up of a, a guy's face. And there's silence, and then gradually building music. And it becomes apparent that this guy's a surfer, and he's waiting for the perfect wave. And uh, as he waits and waits, the voiceover, incredible voiceover voice, wish I could do it. the, uh, The guy goes, he waits. It's what he does. And I tell you what, tick, followed, tock, followed, tick, followed, tock, followed, tick, followed, tock. And so the music builds and builds and builds and then the guy goes crashing into the sea and all the surfers around him are falling under the wave but he makes it through on his surfboard with the white horses literally coming out of the wave over him. But he waits, that's what he does. And we might say of the Christian, she waits, that's what she does. Habakkuk describes a a life of waiting. You see verse 3? Though it linger, wait for it. Or, in verse 4, the language gets even more specific. He says, live by faith. So the Lord's answer is really, "Look, make it clear, Habakkuk, the end is coming. Live by faith. Let me read verse 4. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness, or the footnote tells us, or, or faith. Live by faith. Just as we're told, I think, a lady never reveals her weight. So uh, it seems to me that the Lord doesn't reveal the, the length of his weight, W-A-I-T. I know, it's cheesy, sorry. Um, but the Lord does say, wait. He waits, it's what he does. She waits, it's what she does. May I say, if, if this seems terribly weak to you this morning, If you are, as verse 4 begins by saying, puffed up, if you think that a life of waiting rather than just getting stuff done and action and doing things yourself seems weak, then can I say this is the way the Lord would have it? The righteous person will live by faith. In particular, we know that because three times in the New Testament, Habakkuk 2, verse 4 gets quoted. I mean, three times puts it in the, in the big hitters of Old Testament quotations. First time, Romans chapter one, verse 17, and the second time, Galatians three, verse 11. It's all to show us that the Christian life is lived by faith. It's one of the great, um, cornerstones of the doctrine of justification by faith that was really rediscovered in the Christian Reformation in the 1500s, where Martin Luther and others said, ah, we've, we've lost this truth that, it's not anything that we do it's not justification by works it's justification by faith the righteous person will live by faith if you're new to church or maybe if if you've been coming to church forever but you've just lost sight of this then please just take away chapter 2 verse 4 and understand that it it is not by anything you do that you're acceptable in God's sight it is, it is not by your performance, this, the stuff that happened at work recently, the, the appraisal, the presentation, or the assignment that got delivered. It is not by romance and how you are faring in that category. It is not even by turning up to church this morning, or any sort of baptism you may have had, that you are justified or saved. But it is by faith in Jesus Christ. But the third time that Habakkuk 2 verse 4 gets quoted is in Romans, um, not Romans, Hebrews chapter 10, which is the New Testament reading that we had. And in Hebrews chapter 10, it's a congregation, a church congregation who feel weak and they're struggling. They're in one of the cities of the modern world and stuff has happened to them, which makes them feel oppressed. You know, there's this, there's been this smug oppression bearing down on them. You suffered along with those in prison. You, your, confiscate, your, your property was confiscated. But I don't want you to throw away your confidence. Or in the words of Hebrews 10 verse 37, in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And my righteous one will live by faith. It struck me again this week. I've got a, a first degree in history. You know, the first coming of Jesus wasn't a daydream. It's not, it's not just something that someone popped into someone's head and they, they, they wrote it down because they thought it was a good idea. It really happened. I mean, what Habakkuk would have done for that knowledge? To have known the, the what 11 letters, Jesus Christ, that he, that he will come the first time. We know that. We take it for granted. And Hebrews chapter 10 is saying, look, he will come a second time. It seems like it lingers, though though you have to wait for it. He will come. We are better off than the prophet Habakkuk. So what I want to ask you is, as we draw all this together, we've listened to the complaint about smug oppression, the the answer with no timescale. I want to ask you, will you wait like Habakkuk? seems to me that there's a, a few different ways this could work depending on what time of life, what mode we're in at the moment. The first one is, do you need to repent of the smug oppression that you may have been peddling? And maybe someone in this room who in their business life or in their family life has been guilty of the sort of behavior that Habakkuk describes in the fishing boat, the sort of smug oppression which puts other people down and exploits them. We will learn more about that next week as the Lord delineates what he really thinks about that sort of behavior. But it, it may be that this morning, you need to back off that behavior, come back to God, repent and live by faith. Because he will come. If you don't, he will come and sort it out himself. So maybe maybe repentance. Maybe you're the one Suffering. Maybe, maybe you've suffered smug oppression and, and Habakkuk would say, can you suffer smug oppression and wait? I know, look, I, I know that this one what I'm about to say doesn't compare to, to some other things, but at the prayer meeting last week, we were praying about the Curate's flat, which um, uh, the, the church is buying as an investment and which my family are going to live in, first of all. And uh, some of you know that we were praying because it's been delayed and delayed and delayed. That... That was a great irony to me as I, as I wrote out my sermon points. Ah, an answer with no timescale. Oh, hang on. Uh, I feel like in a, in, a, in a microcosm of Habakkuk's world, I've wrestled with uh, a house purchase with no timescale, which makes ministry somewhat more difficult and family life a bit trickier. In, in whatever you may be suffering as a Christian, is it possible for you to suffer any sort of oppression, but, but wait. Because you know that He is coming. He will deal with it. So will you wait like Habakkuk in, in repentance, in suffering, and, and finally, maybe seek justice? Seek justice, but wait. It's a great delight to me that I I hear things going on in this church, um, like International Justice Mission or um, Tamar Ministries in this city, and I'm sure because I'm new there's other things going on that I don't know about. But in all our seeking of justice, in seeking to do good in this city and in this world because we're Christians, are we able still to retain a sense of waiting? Because of all the good things I can offer to people who are suffering smug oppression, the best thing that I can offer them is to be able to say, There is one coming who is better than me. There is one coming who will sort this out. I know it seems like he's delaying, but he is coming. Will you wait for it with me? I didn't tell you the end of um, the children's book, Angus. But when Angus rides the goods train and he realizes what the train driver's done, he says, no! And he shoves the driver off the train and he pulls the lever and he drives it away with all the cargo still intact. And he goes back to the desert and he feeds the milk to the mother with her baby and he and he goes off to the bears and he gives them the honey and he he goes back to the trees and he gives them water and then he goes back to his bed and and you remember this all being a dream but the last line is angus woke up and he said one day i'll drive the goods train that seems to me a brilliant vocation and aspiration but i would want to say to angus go drive the goods train but jesus drives the ultimate goods train One day, the train will come. Just finally. I once sat with a friend on a bench, and he was a Christian, and his career had just imploded. You know, he promised big things, and he was uh, not... The promises that the seniors had made to him about his career did not come through, and it all came crashing down. And he sat on a bench with me at the lowest point of his depression and he said, do you know I've considered suicide? And I've thought about how I'd do it. I've decided I won't do it because of God and because of my family. But I've thought about dying. But I will, I will live. And it seems to me that he's in a better place now. It seems to me, uh, I don't mean that he died, I mean that he's doing better now. Gosh. Um... Uh, it, it seems to me that he is saying, he, my friend was saying, look, I, I, I won't die in, in the depths of my despair. I refuse to die. I realize God's not saying that to me, but you've got to tell me how to live. And Habakkuk here tells us how to live. The righteous one will live by faith. He waits. That's what he does. She waits. That's what she does. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we are a people who wait this morning. We wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the midst of injustice and in a world which is crying out in in pain and and hunger and smug oppression. We wait for you, our Father. You are our great hope. Seeing our Lord Jesus again face to face is what we are crying out for. So help us to be a people who wait, a church family who wait, members of, of families and friendships and officers and colleagues who wait. And we can't wait to see him one day. Amen.